And, uh, and now uh, the Apostle Paul really, starting in chapter 4, again, we've been here a couple of weeks, begins to get really practical, right? Uh, in light of the finished work of Christ, this is uh, then how Christians live. This is how Christians behave. This is uh, gospel living on the street level. And, uh, and so last week, Pastor Andrew, who uh, I was grateful, uh, was able to be here while I was out, um, talked about how we, we don't walk as Gentiles do. In other words, we don't walk in the way that unbelievers walk. Uh, we put off the old self, we put off the old man, and we put on uh, the new self. And so, um, so Paul kind of extends that conversation a bit and gets immensely practical here. And we're in Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 29. That's kind of where we're going to camp out at. And, um, and then I'm going to, after I read this, I'm going to make some notes, uh, or I'm going to pray, and then I'm just going to kind of make some observations together. But if I had to give this sermon a title, I would call it Clinging to Christ is Practical. Okay, Clinging to Christ is Practical. And the Apostle Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says this. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, okay, those habits that you've developed through your unbelief, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and God, it it is, uh, it encourages us, Lord, to, to be able to, to pray, to be able to sing the doctrines of your word. This brother just reminded us it is encouraging, and it does remind us how blessed we are. And God, we're blessed that you've spoken and that your word is here for us to look at even this morning. And so, God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would help us to see your words. Help us to understand your words. Help us to apply your words to our lives so that we can walk as saints, as we, so that we can walk in newness of life as ambassadors of Christ Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Uh, like I was saying, I think, I think this series, and, and especially this passage uh, this morning, uh, teaches us, it, it demonstrates, shows us that the, the Word of God is, is wonderfully practical. And what we're looking at here in chapter 4, and really for the rest of this book, like I said a moment ago, is kind of street-level saint living, if you will. And, and I framed my sermon this morning under the, the title, Clinging to Christ is Practical, which is another way of saying that, that treasuring Christ, it leads us to a way of life that is distinct from the world and demonstrates to that world our allegiance to Jesus. And so if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to jot this down, and we're going to kind of tease this stuff out as we go. But Christians cling to Christ as truth and as a result live a certain way. Okay, Christians cling to Christ as truth, and as a result, 
live a certain way. Paul says, um, in Christ, okay, we've, we've put away falsehood, and now as saints, he says here in, the, in verse 25 here, we speak truth with our neighbor. We speak the truth with our neighbor. Truth. Right? Christians are to be a people of truth. Right? We're, we're truth tellers. And that's a, a defining characteristic, if you will, of a believer. And, and for something to be true, it needs to be fixed. For something to be true, it needs to be enduring. It has to be immovable. Otherwise, it's not truth, right? Otherwise, it's not something that we should anchor ourselves to. And, and there's plenty of people, people outside, and I'm getting a little bit of feedback. Can you guys hear that? Okay, I don't know what that is. It might just be up here, but there are plenty of people that, that say truthful things, but, but they do so in a way that, that demonstrates they don't belong to God, okay? And so to be a Christian doesn't mean that we uh, are the only people that can say truthful things, but when we say truthful things, as a people committed to the truth, which we should define really as clinging to Christ Jesus as revealed in the Scripture, we, we go about heralding that truth and believing that truth in a particular way, in a very distinct way. Because we all know people, and we've all been those types of people before that say truthful things in really unkind ways, or in really impatient ways, or ungracious ways, or even in uh, hostile ways, we can be truthful and be hostile, unkind, impatient, angry. I don't really need to give you examples of that. You, you have examples that are coming to your mind of, of people that you've seen do that, and, and all of us in this room have been guilty of doing that in some shape, form, or fashion. But in contrast, Christian truth, okay, to be a, a person of truth grounded in the gospel, we do so in biblical love. Right? And we talked several weeks ago kind of about uh, we looked at God being love and all, of, all that that entails. But you guys know the, the pretty wedding um, chapter, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that kind of goes through and defines love, right? We know love is patient and it's kind. It's not boastful or envious. It's not arrogant or rude. It's not selfish. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And for Christians, truth and love come together, right? It's not something that we can divorce from one another. We can't divorce it from one another and call it distinctly Christian, at least, right? They're inseparable, and, and they're, they're inseparable because they're ultimately grounded in Christ Jesus, who calls himself, John 14, 6, the truth, right? And if Christ is the truth, then the truth that we declare and are committed to has to have Christ at the center and worship of God as its goal, right? The truth that we declare, right? If we're to declare truth in a, in a distinctly Christian way, it has to have Christ at the center and the worship of our triune God as the goal, 
So as Christians, we, we need to flesh out the, the posture of our hearts, if you will, as we strive to be people who speak truth, because we're often prone to say truthful things in a sinful way. Right? We're prone to say truthful ways in a manner that, that dishonors the Lord, and, and we brush off our harshness, and we say sarcastically something like, well, just saying, right? or just being honest, or... The truth hurts. While certainly the truth can be painful, we don't need to add to the pain of it, right, by our personalities. But how we communicate truth is extremely important because because God's not just concerned about the result. He's also concerned about the methods, if you will. Can I use this? Is this what you want me to use? That's what I'm going to use. Okay. That way for the next 30 minutes you don't watch me fighting with this thing on my ear. But how we communicate truth is is important because God's concerned not just about the end result, but he's also concerned about the method as well. And let me illustrate this for a moment. In my marriage, uh, and we're going to get to this in Ephesians 5 again because we're going to continue to see uh, how the gospel really is immensely practical for us. But in my own marriage and, um, and, and as the head of my home, I'm representing Christ to my wife. And Paul says this in verses 25 to 27 of Ephesians chapter 5, if you want to thumb over there. He says, husbands, given this charge to husbands here, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, as a husband, if I'm some stoic truth teller, right, a communicator of truthful statements in ways that aren't God-fearing or warm or compassionate, apart from the fact that my marriage is going to fall on hard times, what else is going on? What's going on, and and really the, the, the whole blasphemous truth behind me saying truthful things in unkind, uncompassionate, cold, sterile, clinical ways is that I'm projecting to my wife an image of Christ that isn't true. And that's blasphemous. Right? I'm telling my wife that Christ is some cold, by my methods, that Christ is some cold, distant, unapproachable, communicator of true statements. Yet there in the text, Ephesians 5, I see Christ loved. I see that Christ sacrificed. I see that Christ sanctified. I see that Christ cleansed and presented the church to the Father as his own flesh, as one flesh. This this is the method of, of, of Christian truth-telling that distinguishes it from godless truth-telling, right? Again, because there's, there's plenty of, there can be plenty of truth-telling out there, but is it distinctly Christian truth-telling, right? Is it warm? Is it devoted? Is it consistent? Is it stable? Is it self-sacrificing? Is it others-focused? And most importantly, is it oriented toward God and is the aim 
of you communicating that truth to help reconcile people to God, to project a message of reconciliation. And it's the only type of truth-telling that, that brings any sort of lasting change. So I want to challenge all of us this morning. We need to evaluate the quality of our truth-telling as Christians. There's some questions that we need to ask. Questions like, when you communicate truthful things to people within your own sphere of influence, in the home, your neighbor, etc., are you doing so with the humility of Christ? Are you doing so with the humility of Christ? Are your interactions with people often tense? Are they tense? Does it seem like folks walk around eggshells when they're near you? Does your mind and your heart meditations seem constantly engaged in arguments and conflict? Do you feel a strong desire to be proven right or vindicated in your positions? Or is Christ and his character at the center of your discussions? Is your love for people increasing because they're a focused part of your prayers? Are you approachable? Are you submissive to the sovereign work of the Spirit in God's timetable, not your timetable, but God's timetable for changing hearts and minds? Are you content even with God's methods of changing people? Or do you try to force it? Are you mindful of God's patience and kindness toward you as you communicate with others? These are good questions that we can use to kind of prod our own heart posture before the Lord as we seek to be a people of truth, a distinctly Christian people of truth, right? We're a people clinging to Christ as truth. Therefore, how we communicate truth, it really matters. And ultimately, what we're doing is we're heralding Christ as truth to one another and to this onlooking world that's absolutely convinced that Jesus Christ is irrelevant for their lives. So Christians cling to Christ as truth, and as a result, we, we live in a certain way. Now, let's, let me move on in our text here to some very specific areas Paul addresses in regards to how Christians live, okay? And so if we're clinging to Christ Jesus as truth, that has this trickle-down effect, okay? And, and the Apostle Paul, again, he, he begins to get immensely practical here, and he addresses the Christian in anger. The Christian in anger. Paul quotes from Psalm 4.4, and he says, Be angry and do not sin. Right? He, he says, Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And then we see in verse 27, with that he says, And give no opportunity to the devil. Give no opportunity to the devil. To the devil. So at least two questions can, can come from this passage here. Question one, can we, as sinful, broken, fallen people, can we be angry and not sin? Okay, question one. Question two, what does it mean for the sun not to go down on our anger? And certainly you've kind of heard it put, uh, man, don't go to bed uh, with your wife angry at you, right? That's probably the extent maybe of some of the exposition that we've heard on this passage. But the answer to the first question, can we be angry and not sin? The answer to the first question, I would say, yes, but not for long. Yes, but not for long. Paul, in this passage, he's not telling the church of Ephesus to be angry, but he is saying that there's such thing as righteous anger. 
righteous anger, it can be directed toward things like injustice, right? And we see lots of injustice in our country, in our world. Maybe we see injustice in our home, and it's good and godly for Christians to be angry at injustice, right? We should be angry when someone who's created in the image of God is treated lesser than that. We should be angry when someone created in the image of God is murdered. We should be angry as Christians at the deceitfulness of sin. But the Apostle Paul, with pastoral concern, he's giving some helps to the church of Ephesus and consequently us that perhaps is is and he, and he probably sees that they're uh, perhaps angry, angry at sin, and, and rightfully so, but he gives them this pastoral word of warning, word of caution, if you will. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. What Paul's saying here is that it's good and godly to be angry toward sin, toward injustice. However, only God has the ability to to have sustained anger toward injustice and not be affected by it. Does that make sense? Only God, I'm going to say that again, only God has the ability to have sustained anger toward injustice and not be affected by it. By it. Only God has the ability to keep white hot anger towards sin and not be consumed by it and not enter into temptation or sin himself. So, so practically, what's the warning that the Apostle Paul is giving? The warning is that the narrative of our lives, when people see us, when people see Pastor Joey, the narrative of my life is to be. Uh, about the glories of Christ Jesus, right? The message that we herald, the narrative of our life can't be constant injustices that we see this side of eternity. We have to let the sun go down on that because if we don't, what happens is we give an opportunity to the devil. And what is that opportunity according to Ephesians 4 here? Righteous anger. The opportunity here is that righteous anger for us as sinful, broken people becomes sinful for us quicker than the sun can go down. If we, if we don't settle into the fact that God is just and God's the executor of justice, we'll become embittered people. And embittered people are those people that communicate truth in helpful, unloving ways. Embittered people are those people that look at injustices and begin to blame God and turn their anger toward God in this blasphemous heart posture. Embittered people are those self-righteous people that are waiting for everyone to get with the program. Embittered people are those people that end up trying to take justice into their own hands. And case in point, we've seen several times the bombing of abortion clinics. If we don't believe that righteous anger can turn sinful, if you don't think that that can happen to you, but for the grace of God, there go you. For us to meditate on injustice too long, to try to take that which only God can do on ourselves leads us to taking justice into our own hands and doing some very ungodly things to get justice. One pastor, theologian, Ian Hamilton, he says one of the ways that the devil 
insinuates himself into the life of the church is when Christians allow righteous anger to breed a resentful spirit, or when they nurse unrighteous anger, when they nurse righteous anger so long that it breeds an arrogant spirit in them. Both of these give the devil an opportunity to sow discord and division among members of the body. The devil also, he has an opportunity as it relates to idolatry. It was John Calvin that said the human heart is an idol factory. It's an idol factory. We, We so quickly take good things. I prayed this just a moment ago, but we so quickly take good things and make them ultimate things. And if we become... We, we become consumed with anger toward injustice. One of the things that happens even uninten- unintentionally in our lives is that Christ becomes the supporting actor in our narrative. A Christian's singular focus should be Christ. And this side of eternity, even good things are prone to compete for our allegiance. So we're to be on guard and we're to be watchful. So be angry, do not sin, don't let the sun go down on your anger, don't give an opportunity to the devil. Paul continues and moves on to the Christian in in thievery. Verse 28 here, he says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Laziness is is a squandering, if you will, of what God's entrusted to you. It's a squandering of what God's entrusted to you. It's like the prodigal son whose consumeristic mindset kind of catapulted him into pursuing whatever pleasures he desired until he was absolutely bankrupt and he was cut off from those that he loved. And the thief is lazy and that he or she will do whatever they have to do in order to avoid honest work. Right? They're going to work really hard at not working. Now, maybe you're not breaking into homes, right? You hear the word thief, or you hear stealing, and you're thinking, ah, oh, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not breaking any, into anyone's homes. But maybe you're in a place where you just refuse to work. Right? You can't keep a job down because you're entitled or lazy, or discontent. Right? Paul's addressing you this morning. Your underlining heart posture is that of a thief. It's a thief. And, and what's the big deal? What's the big deal that that's my underlining heart posture? First, what you're doing is blasphemous. You're treating evil, that which God's called good. Right? The God who created you and the God who saved you is the God that created work, and work was a creation ordinance. That means it was created before sin entered the picture, before the fall of man. Genesis 2.15 said the Lord took the man and put him in the garden to work and to keep it. This is pre-sin. This is before the disobedience of Adam. Flip earlier to chapter, chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 28, and God blessed him. God said to both Adam and to Eve, be fruitful and multiply, And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God ordained it so that men and women should work in such a way that it announces his lordship over all creation. 
And God commissioned us to do this before sin even entered the picture, right? Work is not a result of the fall. It's not a consequence of the fall. Work is good, which means work is worship. Work is worship. And and to not work indicates that you have a worship disorder. So if work is worship, that, that means, again, that to not work is blasphemous. Not only did God give us a, a, a job before the fall, but Christ, he reiterated that job in the Great Commission. And whether you realize it or not, your work ethic is directly tied to your ability to herald the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul calls it guarding the good deposit in 2 Timothy. Guarding the good deposit. We guard the good deposit of the gospel in many ways, and one of those ways is through a good work ethic. Look at Acts 18 with me. I don't know if we have it up. Yeah, we have it up on the screen. Acts 18 verses 1 through 4. We have a a little snippet of Paul's testimony, if you will. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus, recently from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he went to see them. And because, get this, he was of the same trade. He had this job other than just heralding the gospel, other than just taking the gospel to the Gentiles. It says, he was of the same trade. He stayed with them and he worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And, he, and then get this, verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue okay, every Sabbath, every Saturday, and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Right? Paul worked. And he had a reputation as a good worker that enabled him to preach about Christ to Jews and Greeks every Saturday, every Sabbath in the synagogue. He was heralding the, this Old Testament that you claim to treasure points to Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Christ Jesus is the Messiah. Repent of your sin and trust in Christ. And his, Paul's commitment to work well it had a direct impact on the calling that God gave to Paul to reach the Gentiles with the gospel. In a sense, we can say as Gentiles that thank God for Paul's work ethic, the gospel, we we benefit from Paul's work ethic. The apostle Paul who took the gospel to the Gentiles. So the work ethic of Paul is directly tied to his ability to herald the gospel, which is the purpose of work. That's the purpose of what we're doing in our vocation. Our passage in Ephesians says that you work, verse 28, the end of verse 28 there in our text, you work so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. You have something to share with anyone in need. We work not so that we can hoard or build up some false sense of security, some counterfeit Savior, if we will. We work so that we can give. We work so that we can give. We give the message of the gospel with a good, hardworking reputation, and we give of our actual money and resources that we're able to acquire through our labor. Our work is is to be Christ-focused, and our work is to be a means of outreach as we're ambassadors of Christ Jesus even in the workplace. And then finally, Paul addresses how we speak, right? Again, we're, we're talking as Christians who cling to truth, 
Um, These are distinct ways Christians are to live their lives as people who walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, who have been transformed by the gospel, um, and who are in Christ, who share union with Christ. We see that the Apostle Paul finally dresses the Christian in speech. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Some of us are so entangled, and I'll just make this as a side note mention, some of us are so entangled with gossip that if we took this verse to heart and we repented of our sin, we, won't have, we wouldn't have a lot to talk about. Right? That we, we're, our mouths are filled with so much negativity and so much tearing down and so much foolish, ba- foolish babble talking about things we have no business talking about, talking about people we have no business talking about, both in the church and outside the church, and, and, and doing so, and talking ignorantly about those things, right? If some of us repented just as that, we would have to figure out what to talk about. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who... So Paul, as we've seen in Ephesians already, you guys saw this last week, he's using put off and put on language again. Put off corrupting talk. Put off talk that tears people down. Put off talk that casts a shadow on the glories of the gospel. Put off corrupting talk that profanes the name of God and put on timely God-glorifying speech that drives people to Jesus. Right, that's what we're to be committed to. And Jesus says in Matthew 12, verses 36 to 37, he says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account, get this, for every careless word they speak. Right? For by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned. What, Paul, what Jesus is saying here is that our mouths, the things that we say, reveal the condition of our hearts. The things we say reveal the condition of our hearts. If you're habitually talking like an unbeliever, if you're habitually tearing people down, if you're habitually uh, gossiping and slandering, you're probably not a Christian. That's what Paul, that's what Jesus here is saying. If that's something that you consistently indulge with no repentance and no remorse, it's a telltale sign that your heart hasn't been captivated by Christ. It's a telltale sign that perhaps the Holy Spirit doesn't live in you. And so our mouths reveal the condition of our hearts. James highlights this even more. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Now many of you should not become teachers, my brothers. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they're so large, they're driven by strong winds. They're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things." How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. That's sad, isn't it? 
The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Right, James is saying, that the tongue is a world of unrighteousness. We bless the Lord, yet we curse people made in the image of God, people that we can see. And in the 21st century, he would say the same thing about our fingers as it relates to the things that we tend to type and the things that we tend to text. With it, we type blessings about God while cursing people made in his image. John says in 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. What we say and how we treat others, it reveals the allegiance of our hearts. And the sweeping testimony of Scripture is that those whose hearts have been captivated by Christ will speak, type, write in such a way that reflects that. So three handles on this really quickly as I bring us down. In, In the fight to control the tongue, right? We're to do so prayerfully. We're to control our tongue prayerfully. We should be praying for a fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control, to extend to our mouths and to extend to our hands and to extend to our body posture. We should, we should uh, take Jesus' words, the speck and log um, teaching that he gives in Matthew chapter 27, and we should apply that. We should see ourselves, first and foremost, as the chief of sinners. That's the log in our eye. And then we, we should see the sins of others as a speck. And what do you do with a speck, right? You, you gently, carefully hold the eye open and you blow gently on that eye so that you can get the speck out and not cause further damage. And so that's another way of saying we should have repentance before we engage with people as a measure to safeguard that we're, we're not out of control with our speech, with our hands, with our body posture. We should have humility knowing Uh, seeing ourselves, man, as the chief of sinners and seeing someone that we're heralding the gospel to as a lesser sinner, and we should have sensitivity, right? We should have sensitivity as we we hold the eye open and we gently blow so as not to provoke them to despair or to do anything that profanes the name of Christ. And then the third handle on this, thus saith the Lord. We need to be sure that the things that we're saying, we can turn chapter and verse to. That helps us to avoid the slavery of legalism, where we say, God, I think you should do this, and you communicate it in a way as if you're telling them God said that they should do that. That's enslaving. It has no place in the church. And thus saith the Lord also helps us to avoid the pitfall of saying that there's no standard by which we should live. 
So we want to avoid legalism. We want to avoid um, saying that there's no standard by the way that we live, and we do that by being grounded, by standing on this anchor, this unchanging scripture, and, and not saying any more than it says. All right, not saying any less than it says, not saying any more than it says. The bottom line for us this morning, and what I hope we see even in the coming weeks, is that the word of God is earthy. Right? It's practical, and, and when we study passages like this, our, our mind and hearts, because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, should say, yes, this sounds exactly like how Christians should live. This, this, this hits the nail on the head. Of course, Christians should live like this in light of who God is for them in Christ Jesus. Right? We're saints, and we're the salt of the earth, and we are leavening the earth with the gospel of Christ. We're planting mustard seeds by the power of the Holy Spirit, confident that they'll grow into large trees. And our commitment to how we herald the truth, how we handle anger, how we labor, how we speak, all contributes to both walking comfortably with God, walking with a clean conscience, and being ambassadors of Christ Jesus. And so with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to move to a time of feasting on Christ through the means of grace called the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're to cling to Christ as truth, and when we do that, we're animated in such a way, God, that, that Lord, the way that we're angry towards sin glorifies you and builds your church. Lord, the way that we work glorifies you and builds the church. Lord, the way that we speak glorifies you and builds the truth. Lord, how we herald, how we hold this truth, God. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, God, it's living and active and it, and it, and it can penetrate our, our soul, Lord, and, and your Holy Spirit can use it to convict us, God. And so give us the humility to repent, Lord, because we're all guilty of the things that we've seen in your word this morning. We're all guilty. And Lord, we need Christ. So thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the reconciliation work that you've provided, you've accomplished. Thank you for your Holy Spirit living in us. And we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.